Welcome back to Crime Capsule. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. I don't know about you guys, but I keep a couple items in my car at all times. Granola bars in the glove box, flashlight in the armrest, and a can of WD-40 in the trunk because you never do know when you'll need it. But among the most essential items that I keep on hand is an area guidebook tucked in the pocket behind my seat. If I'm passing through a new town or taking a new route home, I find guidebooks to be way more helpful than snarky, anonymous Yelp reviews which you can't read while you're driving anyway. The author's been there, they've scouted that breakfast joint out, they've stayed in that B&B, they've met the region's ghosts and witches firsthand. Uh, wait, what? Yeah, you heard me. Depending on where you're going, if you're traveling during spooky season, you've got to know what you're getting into. And luckily, for anyone on the road near Massachusetts or Connecticut these days, we've got you covered. Thomas D'Agostino is the co-author, along with his wife Arlene Nicholson, of New England's Haunted Route 44, just published by the History Press. Arguably one of the most enigmatic highways in the country, full of strange sightings and unexplained events from end to end, Route 44 will intrigue even the most hardened skeptic out on their Sunday drive. In our last featured interview for this extended spooky season, we are thrilled to have Tom join us and take us on a little trip into the unseen. Tom, welcome to Crime Capsule. Well, thank you. Well, great being here. I'm really excited about this one. <laughs> this is awesome. Yeah, absolutely. We are too. We are too. Now, you are the author of 17 books and counting, <laughs> which is a number that still kind of boggles my imagination. Um, we're going to come to those books in just a moment, but before we do so, tell us a little bit about your background. Well, uh, actually, I grew up in a haunted house, and we, a uh, big family, <laughs> and nice, I nice. really loved like uh, ghost stories and horror stories, and so did my brothers and sisters, and uh, you know, it was, it was all those old horror movies and things. Remember the back in Frankenstein and all that it was really cool. And Edgar Allan Poe remakes, you know, from with Vincent Price. And mm-hmm. when I was in college, I was um, my friend had a house, and he said, "Hey, you want to stay in this house for the winter because I just bought it and I'm going to fix it up in the summer and sell it." So I said, "Sure, you know, I'm in college, you stay in the house." Um, well, I lasted six days. Because there's so many things were happening. Yeah. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah, so many wild things were happening. I couldn't sleep and I couldn't study. So, I mean, you know, that's not good at all for someone in college studying uh, law, physical, political science. <laughs> yeah. So, I, I turned some of my electives to um, social sciences and physical sciences and esoterical sciences, even meteorology, just to see why mm. any of this happens. And that was uh, 40, that's now 42 years ago. And yeah. lo and behold, after, you know, I began to research and investigate uh, after a while and uh, 
just found that New England is amazing and just kept kept on researching and investigating, done over well over 2,000 investigations. So, I mean, let me ask right up front, um, what did you learn about the house where you grew up? Um, it, it, it was built in the uh, 30s or 40s, but there was just some sort of activity. Um, my One of my brothers said it was like a, a little boy or something. Uh, maybe that passed away in the house before we bought it. And hmm. basically, he, he never left. <laughs> Playing with the toys, left. playing. Oh, a lot of times upstairs, we were all, you know, we were where the toys were and everything, so. So you would not classify this as that kind of malicious poltergeist activity which comes up in some of the accounts in your book? This was a more benign presence, you think, in the house? Yeah, more or less like wanting to actually play with us. I mean, who who are we to refuse when <laughs> when the invitation is extended, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, when you're a kid, it can get a little unnerving. You don't refuse; you just run or something. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, our listeners may hear that my uh, my studio cat Snickers has just entered uh, the 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 chambers. She has decided to weigh in on this topic. She's a Halloween colored cat as a tortoise shell, so she oh. loves spooky season. This is big for her. This is big for her. Um, so, Tom, I mean, when you had this early experience, you had a wonderful uh, introduction, you could say a crash course or the kind of the thrown into the deep end, uh, you know, education on the paranormal. How did you decide to formalize that study, right? I mean, because we can, we can have fun going around houses and, and hearing things and so forth, but when it came time to actually crystallize your knowledge and turn that into a disciplinary pursuit, how did that work? Well, like, for us, you know, we'd go to, like, cemeteries or some friends saying, hey, I think my house is haunted. Hey, I think this is haunted. And, well, we'd do investigations, and then I'd research uh, very famous investigators. At that time, it wasn't too many. You had, like, Harry Price, Elliot O'Donnell, you know, and the mm-hmm. old-fashioned, old-fashioned way of investigating. But uh, I approached it more like, okay, if these, these are, like, disembodied people... Then you should just treat them mm-hmm. like people. Like, okay, yeah. how you doing? My name's Tom. What's yours? You know, and um, just yeah. talk normally. And it worked pretty well because when you're being friendly and you're not barraging someone with a million questions, who wants to answer mm. a thousand questions and, you know, be like interrogated? Mm. <laughs> and mm. so that became my approach. Then as we got more scientific in the study of it with more equipment, I picked up every, you know, that kind of stuff and I'd experiment with it, seeing what's real and what might not be, you know, just a fad or something. You know, it's interesting because we don't often talk about the uh, the kinds of hospitality that we are supposed to show to our unexpected guests, do we? Yeah. <laughs> you know, it's sort of like we we kind of we're entering into their space, and you know, we kind of have to play by their rules. But then there's also that sense of I, I love the fact that y- you kind of said early on. Well, I'm not going to bother the ghost if he doesn't really want to be bothered. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's just so kind of you. <laughs> That's great. I love it. I love it. Well, let me ask you about some of your previous work. I mean, you said 17 books is just marvelous. You've been at this for a long time. I mean, has it all been on paranormal studies or have you worked in other domains as well? 
No, it's all been paranormal studies. Uh, my wife Arlene Nicholson and I, we've been mm-hmm. investigating together for 28 years. And mm. uh, we just, uh, actually, I, people used to come up, because I'm a musician too, so I'd be playing out. And people would come up and go, oh, I hear it goes hunting. Is there any cool places to go? And this stuff. And I'm like mm. writing directions on napkins and everything. So fine. Nice. She goes, we both decided, like, we should write a book on this, you know, tell people where to go. <laughs> yeah. Basically. Yeah, absolutely. But in a good way, of course. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. and so um, we got the idea of Haunted Rhode Island first because that's where we lived. And mm-hmm. the publishing company was like, well, we're not really big on it, but we'll give it a shot. And it became the flagship of their some 700 books now. <laughs> Wow, nice. That's awesome. Um, so how is it how is it working uh, with a collaborator, in this case, your wife, but I mean, how do, how do you guys do the kind of, you know, dividing up the research or dividing up the writing? You know, is, are there things which you uh, sort of segregate for just one person and then things that you actively kind of shop back and forth on the, the pros level? How do you guys do that? Well, yeah, I do a lot of the research and... Uh, then I kind of write down, shot everything down, and uh, then mm-hmm. we actually go to the places. And Arlene's a professional photographer, so um, we both go everywhere together. And she'll take mm-hmm. pictures of it of the, what we need, and then we'll both do more research on it. And then uh, um, I'll put it all in the writing, and then she edits it because <laughs> mm-hmm. she also was an editor for uh, GBH. And then uh, yeah, yeah, and then. Uh, we go back and read it one more time, make sure it's okay, and it goes off to the publisher. So we're we're both like you know up to our necks in it equally. Absolutely, all hands on deck at every at every stage of the process. That's great. Some folks will kind of hive pieces off, you know, to one or the other in collaboration. But I I love that sense of like both of you guys are working on every aspect at all times. That's wonderful. Yeah, we print, actually, I would print out, uh, you know, what we have as a manuscript, and then when we're traveling to somewhere, uh, she'd be driving, and I'd be reading it, so we could correct mm. it even then while we're driving. You got to find those efficiencies, right? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> That's when, uh, when you got that deadline bearing down on you. Uh, so, New England's Haunted Route 44 is the title of your newest book. And it is a thrilling ride, pardon the pun, but it really is start to finish, just you know, an incredible adventure. We have had here on Crime Capsule a couple of other uh, authors who have done Haunted Highway series. I'm thinking of Lisa Livingston Martin, who uh, explored Missouri's Haunted Route 66. We've also had uh, Brian Clune, who looked at California's Haunted Route 66 once it hits that kind of far western coast. But this is the first haunted highway that we have had in New England, your neck of the woods where you were born and raised. Now, you argue pretty early on in the book. I thought this was interesting, Tom. You argue that New England and Haunted Route 44 in particular is the most haunted highway in America. Now, that is quite a claim. Why Why do you put that out there? Well, number one, for it's 237 miles, and it, in that 237 miles, you're pretty jam-packed with a lot of places. I mean, it's a road trip that you would be, mm. it doesn't take one day, put it that way. 
And, uh, mm-hmm. So it's so jam-packed. It's not like, okay, we got to drive 100 miles to the next site. You know, within 10 miles at the most, maybe you're stopping going, crap, here I am. <laughs> oh, boy. Mm-hmm. You know, here's the That's next cool. site. Here's the yeah. next area. And uh, basically, uh, New England is the most haunted uh, region, as everybody says in the, you know, in the, in the country. And there mm-hmm. are claims that people say that Route 44 is the most haunted highway just for one or two haunts alone. They didn't, I don't know if they had any clue of how many are actually along that road. You know, it's funny because uh, I live here in New Orleans and, you know, folks love to kind of claim our little patch of, um, you know, of soil and water as incredibly densely populated with spirits and presences and ghosts and so forth. And it is true. I I love the notion that we can actually try to uh, establish a competition. <laughs> it's very American of us, isn't it? You know, it's, yeah. <laughs> you know, New York, Brooklyn is the most haunted borough, or you know, like New Orleans is the most haunted city. Like everybody wants a piece of that particular <laughs> title. Uh, but but at the same time, one of the things that one of the things that makes your book so unique in the presentation of that case is that you really back it up, and and I love the way that you structure the book as you travel from east to west, you have I mean, these these stops, and they come thick and fast. I mean, you really are, as a reader, getting off every five to ten miles, right? Uh, sort of thinking like, and you provide directions, you provide, you know, the addresses, you provide the when, when to go and kind of, you know, how to, how to catch everything. And I, I know exactly what I'm going to do when I get to Connecticut. <laughs> <laughs> no, you know, like I actually have my guidebook in hand, thanks to you and, and your wife, which is which is great. Um, l- let me ask you. So, um, you you have so many stops in this particular uh, account and in this journey. Did you visit every single one of them yourselves? Uh, yeah, actually, we visited like ninety percent of them because in some mm-hmm. cases the, the places would be closed for the season or something. So I'm like, oh well, we can't tour that. No, but yeah, yeah, we took our way through Plymouth and all the other places. I'd, I'd say about 95% of the places we were able to actually go visit. That's awesome. And uh, we'll, we're going to come to some specific cases here in a second. But w- w- out of all of them, was there one that just really stood out to you as sort of top spooky, right? You yeah. know, like took the cake, won the title. You know, just left you feeling so thoroughly unsettled. You were like, "This is King of the Hill." Uh, yeah, in Chapachet, Rhode Island, the tavern on Main, right on Main Street. Uh, there's some. There's about six spirits or something in there, and we still get calls from people who tell us, "You wouldn't believe what happened to us last night there, or last week, or things like that." It's so active that it's just, I guess, the spirits that that, that are there do not want to leave, but they do want to be noticed. Hmm. Well, it being a tavern, maybe the drinks are cheap enough that they're just having such a good time. (laughs) (laughs) Who would blame them for, uh, (laughs) you know, not wanting to get kicked out? But, well, let's do this. Um, You start your book. Uh, Again, it's a, it's a, it's a journey. It's a guidebook. It's a, you know, you have, you have this sort of really 
itinerary based structure to it, which is great. And you start this journey in Plymouth. Now, Plymouth, of course, has a very rich and storied history, um, but I thought we could take a look at why you chose to kick things off in Plymouth, first of all, because you, you say a few things about that in the book. Um, and then we can visit, we can take a little municipal tour yeah. of some of the sites in in Plymouth as well. So um, why, why did you start it there, Tom? Uh, basically because, number one, uh, well, it's right on the ocean, the Atlantic Ocean. So that's a good place to start. You know, you can't go the other direction. Uh, and uh, it's the basically the birthplace of America, as they call it. You know, America's hometown. Mm-hmm. That's where uh, the pilgrims finally settled in 1620 and uh from there things just went outward and upward Mm. and southward and one of your arguments which uh threads is probably a better word one of the threads in the book which is uh, very visible early on is this notion of when the settlers arrived and they began to make contact with native american populations um, those forms of early contact uh, began to serve as the basis for some of the incidents in your book, right? So that so the notion of kind of disturbed spirits or or you know presences that did not find peace, whether you know they were killed in violent means, I mean that goes right back to the early 1600s. Yeah, this is because they came here. They didn't have a you know, a construction company waiting to build houses for them. They didn't have a blacksmith saying, okay, I'm going to make you guys some shovels, blah, blah. Things were very, very harsh and brutal. And when they got here in the winter, they actually thought it was going to be as mild as England was. Hmm. They didn't know the winter was being about, you know, the same latitude. Um, they didn't know that, is that a, yeah, latitude, well, <laughs> you know, on the same plane. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They didn't know that, uh, you know, we had very harsh winters here in New England, and so a lot of them did die, you know, it was very tragic. And uh, then mm-hmm. you had, you did have some confrontations with the original indigenous people, and mm-hmm. on both sides there was obviously, you know, some, some tragedies, and the wild animals and all kinds of things. So it was ripe for basically... Uh, scarring the land for these people who came here to make a peaceful new life. Yeah. And you also had just the treachery of the elements and the landform and the danger of the coast itself. And there's a fairly dramatic shipwreck, um, you know, which you, which you describe, um, you know, that, that has resulted in quite a lot of activity in, yeah. <laughs> uh, in, in, in that area. Well, let's start off with the Spooner House. So uh, right at the very beginning, you describe there's a particular residence which has a, a spirit of, of kind of very distinctive appearance. Um, so tell us about the Spooner House. Yeah, the Spooner House was basically... Um, it was it. It was in the Spooner family. I mean, it was uh, in the Spooner family until 1954. It was originally built mm-hmm. in 1749, but Ephraim Spooner took it over a few years later. But in 1954, mm-hmm. James Spooner actually gave it to the Historical Society, and uh, all the artifacts are still there. In fact, he's mm-hmm. one of the ghosts they believe who is seen in the house because they hear he was a music lover. And they hear music mm. from the period of time he would have lived, as if someone was playing like old 78 records. Uh, 
But Abigail Townsend is uh, the most prominent spirit there, a little girl. She uh, was, I guess she was adopted by the Spooner family. And okay. she she died of uh, an abscess tooth infection. And mm, Yeah, of course. Yeah, and, and people began to see her. Uh, they do walking tours around the Spooner house as part of a big haunted tour. And in one case, uh, this girl, little girl comes and pulls, tugs, uh, you know, one of the tours, tour people do shirt. And the woman on the tour turns around and says, oh, hi. And she goes, oh, I got to go now. And she vanishes. <laughs> Another time, yeah, another time, she, she, the little girl comes out of what they call the Spooner Alley. It's just an alley between two houses. And uh, everyone's going, like, wow, that's so cool. You have, like, this actor coming out, you know, making the tour really well. And the tour guy goes, well, uh, it's 10 o'clock at night. We don't have little children actors <laughs> running around. <laughs> you know? Yeah. People have seen her, like, in, looking out the windows. And a construction crew, when they were doing renovations, this construction crew, the head foreman knocks on the door because he couldn't get in. Nobody, they were supposed to leave it unlocked, and I guess they forgot. And this little girl answers the door and uh, walks away. Now, this was like 2005, 2006, so it's not like, you know, he just gets on his cell phone. He goes, oh, I came in. The door was locked, Mm -hmm. but the little girl let me in to the uh, curator. Curator goes, we don't have a little girl in the house. Ooh. And they went looking into the living room where she walked in, and there's only one way in and one way out, and it was empty. I don't know. What do you make of it? <laughs> what's, what's, what's your? Uh, what do you think's going on there? Well, it, you know, it's kind of cool because if she's answering doors and talking to people, that's an intelligent spirit. She may not know she's been long past. Mm-hmm. She's that still how, lives how, there. <laughs> yeah. How common is it that? You know, so often the spirits that we encounter, and you write about many of these, they um, they do not actually have the capacity or the agency to interact with the physical plane, right? And so it's kind of interesting. Like, you know, you sort of see them as apparitions, or they kind of appear and then disappear into the wall or kind of melt away. Um, but there's never any contact, you know, right, with things. And in this particular case, we're, we're suggesting there's like a... I don't know a, a, a higher gradient somehow of of their corporeality. So, yeah. how do you make sense out of that? If she's able to open a door, if that's kind of the report. Yeah, it's very interesting because uh, it, it, it must be a very very high you know, density of energy in that in that home or in that area around the house or something for be able to have some spirit like that or ghost actually uh, manipulate items. It's not uncommon. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're not really absolutely sure how or why yet, you know, until we can sit down with, you know, go to the other side and hang out with, like, Elvis and Jim Morrison. <laughs> I can't wait, man. <laughs> that is, of course, if yeah. they're dead, remember? We've heard the rumors. And then come back. That's true. And, and, and Jimmy Hoffa, too, right? Yep, we're going to yep. find out where Jimmy Hoffa finally is. <laughs> yep. and, you know, and then come back and say, oh, this is what happens. You know, or invite a ghost to dinner, and they actually sit down and tell you, you know, this is how it works. We're still grasping at straws, so... Sure. That's, it's an intriguing case because of that higher level of engagement, you know, that you see. Not not everybody that you write about has that uh, sort of, you know, feature or, or what have you. So let's take a look at uh, Spooner House is great. Mm-hmm. Definitely got to visit the Spooner House. Yeah, and, they do tours. You know, that's... Mm-hmm. 
and 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 I hope I hope that the uh, you know folks' camera batteries are charged, right? If you know what I mean, because that's <laughs> that's always the the pitfall. But let's take a look elsewhere in Plymouth. You have a great discussion of the. Uh, the lighthouse and the, the sort of the Plymouth lights and this one this one got me my father was a Navy man he was a sailor wow. and you know think about the um, you know the early days of coastal navigation where you know lighthouses were it you know I mean you didn't have GPS you didn't have uh, these kind of modern modern devices to get you safely up and down the coast and and this particular lighthouse has quite a history behind it and quite an unusual abiding presence so take us there yeah the um the actually the plymouth light which is kind of cool uh it was it was uh donated actually the land was donated after it was even erected in 1769 john and mm-hmm. yeah john and hannah thomas uh gave the land and he was the light keeper him and his wife uh, from 1769, when it was first erected, to 1776, mm-hmm. when actually he became a casualty of the war, uh, that the impending mm-hmm. revolution, and then Hannah took over. She was officially the first woman lightkeeper in America. Oh, how about that? Yeah. A fort was erected near there, but um, uh, it was kind of cool because uh, the, uh, one of the British ships fired on the fort, but it, I guess they missed and they hit the lighthouse. <laughs> <laughs> Whoops! Yeah, <laughs> probably, uh, probably a more strategic, uh, you know, decision, even if in an accident, right? <laughs> oh yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah, it was kind of cool because it started out with two lights, and then they tore one down. It was just, you know, there was like not necessary to have two of them, so they tore them down and made one light. And uh, obviously, it was like all, a lot of these lighthouses; they build them close to the water but they come to find out erosion mm-hmm. threatens their existence so this one had to be moved in 140 feet like several of them had to be doing that but uh hannah mm-hmm. uh being the first light keeper and very brave and very i guess dedicated to her job has never left yeah. the lighthouse oh okay. yeah uh, you, the people can stay there in other words you can there's, there's a lot of lighthouses in new england you can actually stay overnight at like a bed and breakfast. Ah, nice. And this nice. Is, this basically was one of them. And uh, they, you know, the Hannah shows up and when the people are sleeping, and uh, you know, she she'll tug on the covers. Uh, she'll she's looking <laughs> over you. She'll just you know whatever. She just likes to make herself known. And uh, she obviously uh, is still there. <laughs> yeah. You know, I was, I was reading that particular passage where you describe it's it's a little um, unsettling, Tom. I, I have to I have to say um, that you've had guests at the the bed and breakfast who, you know, one of them wakes up and sees the figure of a woman simply standing over the bed, watching, you know, the other one sleep, and then she disappears. I don't know if I could ever go back to sleep again for the rest of my life if I were to see something quite like that. Yeah, she's been known. Yeah, so. she, she was known to do that. It, I, we've actually had instances where people have told us that kind of thing happened a lot. One person will wake up and there's the next one. You know, they look next by them and there's somebody standing looking at their wife or their husband or you know a significant other. 
boyfriend, girlfriend. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, it, it is kind of freaky, especially when they vanish and the other person had no clue of it. You know, I don't know if I'd say, hey, I uh, no clue. The ghost was just yeah. looking at you and hanging out with you. I, I don't think I'd want to tell the other person. <laughs> Yeah, I would wonder, I mean, is Hannah worried here that, like, maybe these folks are going to try to take her job? Is that the concern? (laughs) What do you think's going on? I don't know, because she wanders the grounds in. Maybe she's wondering, what the heck are these people doing here? (laughs) You know, this is a lighthouse, not a inn. Yeah, I know, right. I was like, is she expected to be the one to prepare breakfast? I don't think so. Now, yeah. this one is really interesting because it does tie directly back to that Revolutionary War history of, of Plymouth and uh, the eastern Massachusetts. Now, um, you have this discussion of this shipwreck, this really significant shipwreck that took place um, right off the the waters there of the general... Arnold. Now, how did that shipwreck contribute to the paranormal activity in this area? That was amazing because the, uh, there was a few ships there, but the General Arnold was um, docked with them, and a storm kicked up. Uh, of course, it was in December, uh, but what happened was um, in, in <clears throat> the same night, they said the same night that Benedict Arnold decided to turn traitor, this ship... Mm-hmm crashed uh in the in the bay and didn't completely sink it's only sank Ah. up to the like the people's like knees and waist in some cases and yeah that's that's what made it so even horrible because now captain james mcgee had a lot of liquor on the ship is telling everyone pour the liquor into your boots pour the liquor into your pants you know so you don't your legs don't freeze but a lot of them mm. opted to drink it instead to try and stay warm, and many of them froze You're to not death. supposed to do that. Yeah. You're not supposed to do that. Yeah. Nope, nope, nope. That's the wrong way to go. Yeah, it thins your blood. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, and it brings the, it brings the heat, uh, it brings the blood closer to the surface of the body, which radiates heat away from the core. So, yeah, yeah it's uh, bad news, bad news. Well, what I mean, it took a while, so, several days, but they finally were able to make an ice bridge out to the ship where most of the uh, soldiers had frozen to death. And they brought him back to the uh, old courthouse. And mm-hmm. James McGee and several others lived. And But these people, they were buried in the Plymouth burial ground with a monument. Now, he never forgave himself for what happened, even though it wasn't his fault. Uh, but he requested to be buried with them when he died. Now, he, he was, you know, given a wealthy compensation and everything. He gave a lot of his money to the survivors, feeling bad for them. But these, because of that, that one area of the burial ground is very haunted. People see mists floating about. People, uh, they can, you can walk over there and you automatically get the feeling like, wow, this is a lot of energy in this part of the burial ground. And it's not neg- not totally negative, but it's certainly not pro- positive at all. Right, right. And right when you have an untimely death or when you have a wrongful death, even if there's no one directly to blame for it, you know, the idea is that you still have some kind of disturbance in a person's, um, you know, remains of their psyche or their spirit, which is hanging around. And it's it's just unresolved, right? Like yeah. they, they died before their time. Well, you got now, 72 l- l- men. I mean, like 72 of them. <laughs> That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, uh, no, I mean, no account of, uh, you know, paranormal history in a region, of course, would be complete without a tour of such graveyards. And you do spend a good bit of time in Plymouth burial ground, and you write that there are uh, 
sort of spirits spanning multiple eras in American history, which are still found there. How much time have you spent kind of traipsing around <laughs> Plymouth Burial Ground, Tom? Is that is that one of your kind of favorite spots for yourself to haunt? <laughs> there you go. Yeah, it is a cool uh, place. I mean, being from New England, we've been to Arlene and I alone have been to Plymouth, I don't know, 15 times, you know, in the last yeah. 15 years. So the burial ground is always a must uh, because it spans, yeah. I mean, such a long amount of time. It's not like these burial mm-hmm. grounds that were started in 1860 or 1880 or something like that. This thing goes back to the very first settlers being buried there right up to, uh, you know, there's some areas where there's newer graves. So, you know, the burial ground, uh, you have also, uh, there was the old fort there. And during King Philip's mm-hmm. War, which ended in, uh, around here in 1676, they brought back right. King Philip's head and they put it on a pole there <laughs> near the burial ground. Oh. As well as uh, Chief Anuwan and Tisquapin, all three of them the same, met the same mm-hmm. fate. So now you have these Indian curses and spirits. Um, then you have uh, the ghosts of the General Arnold. Uh, from 1770s, and then you have a, one other one that there's several others that are seen about. So this is like wow, this is like a big party of you know American history over here running around. There really is. <laughs> there really is. It's kind of it's, it's kind of great when you think about all those overlapping uh, you know entities and eras. I was quite taken with your. It's a brief discussion in the burial ground uh, section, but I was quite taken with your account of the descendant of. Uh, the Mayflower uh, sort of company, uh, Mr. Thomas Howland or Holland. Uh, I wasn't quite sure how to say it, but yeah, Howland, I mean, yeah. he was one of the Howland. Howland, yeah. I mean, we we love a good a good curse, <laughs> you know, that leads to, <laughs> that lead like you know that that's like the guy committed this terrible act. He got cursed for it, and he got what was his. You know, yeah. I mean, yeah, he was he wanted he wanted this woman's land. And uh, he was going to get it, and they called him mother. They called her Mother Crew, and they thought she was a witch. But uh, sure, yeah, nobody, you know. But anyway, so he took the land, and uh, he found a way to get the land. And uh, she said, "And he want, I'm going to have that land." And she goes, "Well, you better make your peace because you will not see or live to see another sunset." And he's like, "Yeah, yeah, mm. yeah, yeah." And she said, "They'll dig your grave on Burial Hill." Within you, and and he's like, yeah, 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 go away, old lady. And yeah, he fell from his horse and died <laughs> right after that. And there it is, <laughs> man. And uh, he was and buried in Burial Hill. And then there's one yep, I like of uh, uh, Ida Elizabeth Spare, the little girl who died in 1860. Mm, yeah, tell us about her. And she's buried up there. So this is cool. You got graves going from like 1660 to 1860 uh, and further. Um, but her parents, Thomas and Elizabeth Spear, still go visit her to this day. Really? Yeah, they're seen really? walking up by Summer Street up the path of misty figures. Sometimes people can't mm-hmm. make out their legs, and other times you can just see them almost like they're real. Maybe it depends on what mm-hmm. the you know weather is or something, the pressure zone, the energy pockets. But mm-hmm. Uh, <clears throat> yeah, they just float solemnly up the path right to the site of her burial where they stand there for a second and vanish. Now, do we have any... Th- these, these accounts are very well documented. I mean, you know, you write that you have 
you know, systematically kind of investigated these, and these are not, um, you know, coming out of nowhere. You have multiple witnesses. You have different kinds of attestations and so forth. Um, do we have any visual record, any any photographic, um, you know, kind of evidence of these figures at any point? Because some of, some of our previous authors, you know, have been able to capture some ambiguous looking things on film where you're, you know, really is kind of hard to say. Yeah, I would, I would love to have any photographs like that. If I had them, I would, I would have put them in the book immediately, you know, and say, you yeah. be the judge, yeah. you know, <laughs> that type thing. Unfortunately, very little um, that we you can find, or you know, sometimes if you do, like, oh, there's a ghost looking out that window. No, it's the way the light's hitting the rolled glass. Blah blah blah. Mm-hmm. People, you know, mm-hmm. but um, to get a photograph of like misty figures wandering up a hill would be awesome. And someone yeah, might we'll, say, we'll ah, just it's just go. Photoshop. <laughs> right, <laughs> which is uh, all the all. You know, all the rage these days is mm. to uh, to put something out there which could go either way, and then say let the people decide. It's pretty good for generating uh, hype on social media. If you've if you've seen some of the same stuff I have, let's take a look at one more. Uh, I mean, we haven't even left Plymouth, which is amazing. <laughs> There's so many cases that are just in <laughs> this one town. Um, we are going to leave Plymouth next week. We're going to travel <laughs> down the highway uh, to to investigate some of the most amazing cases. I'm super excited for that. But let's look at one more uh, from from uh, America's birthplace, as you call it. And it's it's an unusual one because it's it's got sort of layered in its telling. Um, you have what's called a true vampire story. You have what's called the vampire scare of New England, which took place I guess about a decade or two after the Revolutionary War, um, in the sort of turn of the century between the 1700s and 1800s, and and here we actually have an account which is contemporaneous to the time of the incident, right? I mean, you actually have an account from from those 200 years ago, and we should note it's very important to note. This was before Edgar Allan Poe was <laughs> pinning his tales yeah. further down yeah. south. I mean, this is a good, you know, 30, 30 to 40 years, you know, before his work began to um, really circulate and inspire the, the ghostly and the macabre uh, in, in his readers. So take us, take us to this vampire scare in Plymouth County. Yeah, uh, 1784 is the first documented that we know of. Uh, of someone mm-hmm. being exercised for vampirism in New England, and it did last over a hundred years with hundreds, if not thousands, of families. It was tuberculosis, mm-hmm. what they called consumption, which would mm-hmm. make a person <clears throat> pale, gaunt. They'd be coughing up blood. They looked like they were vampires. Well, the they, people didn't think that the person was rising from the grave. They thought the spirit of the person was rising from the grave, and. <clears throat> A case that took place in 1807 in Plymouth was pretty interesting Mm -hmm. because um, it took the whole family. The whole family died of, uh, you know, consumption. But it was written about, a guy wrote about it in 1822. And and this was really interesting because it was the first issue of the Old Colony Memorial 
in Plymouth County Advertiser, which was May 4th, 1822, where he says about 15 years ago, a whole family was mm. seized by this consumption until there was only a few members left um, when the mother was there and then uh, the son. And, and what happened was, well, the girl about 16 years old, she, uh, you know, she had died. And what they figured they had to do was an exorcism for vampirism. So they dug up mm. all of them, and they dug her up. And what they did, they, they instead of the typical thing in New England was to cut out the hot liver lungs and burn it. Ah, because they believed right. that because that's yeah. just the done thing. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, the, yeah, the, yeah right. that way, if the body was in the hole, even even if it's you know in the, in the ground uh, decomposing, it would still feed on the family members. In some cases, they actually ah, fed gotcha. those ashes to the sick. But in this case, they decided to turn her upside down so she would get confused. And instead of rising up out of the grave, she'd keep digging herself deeper. And the cure didn't work because the rest of the family died. But it's cool because the writer of the article writes a wicked cool poem. This is a great poem. But in the end, his last words were, the living was food for the dead. Yeah. Yeah, that was a pretty wicked cool poem. <laughs> I was really into that poem. Yep. Can, would you actually, Tom, as we as we um, uh, as we close out here for this week, would you be so kind as to read that poem to us so we can get a sense of you know the the fear, the uncertainty, the doubt, the the horror that was circulating in those days? Yeah, sure. This was a recollection, actually, too. So it wasn't like I'm just making this up. You know, the guy or whoever. It was a recollection. I saw her. The grave sheet was round her. Months had passed since they'd laid her in the clay. Yet the damps of the tomb could not wound her. The worms had not seized on their prey. Oh, fear was her cheek as I knew it. When the rose, all its colors were brought. And that I did a tear then do it gleamed like a herald of thought she bloomed though the shroud was around her locks of her hair cold bosom wave as if the stern monarch had crowned her the fair speechless queen of the grave but what lends the grave such a luster over her cheeks what beauty had shed his life blood who bent there had nursed her the living was food for the dead. That is amazing. Yeah. <laughs> that, is, that hits on so many levels. Yeah, very <laughs> And uh, I got to say, I mean, as, as, as a... Um, you know, as one who writes and publishes poetry, I, I, I am very impressed with the rhyme luster and nursed her. That is a... That is a champion slant rhyme right there. Oh, yeah. Uh, Emily Dickinson, eat your heart out. <laughs> yeah. Right? Well, yeah, really tough to find something to rhyme with luster. <laughs> yeah, it is. It is. Um, you know, it's sort of like you could go muster with the, you know, the kind of the troops, you know, in a battalion. Ooh. But no, the, the register doesn't work there. It's a totally different domain. But, you know, the, the fair, speechless queen of the grave. Ah. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> this is great stuff, man. This is great. Very great illustrious. Stuff. 
Very indeed. Uh, Edgar Allan Poe, uh, you know, sit and take some notes here. This is, this is great. Well, thank you for taking us to Haunted Plymouth this week. This has been uh, pretty, pretty chilling. <laughs> uh, you know, I'm, I'm not sure I'll be sleeping very well tonight, but we're going to try. Um, you know, if I, if I wake up and find any ghostly light keepers standing over, uh, you know, my bed, you'll be the first to know. There <laughs> Man, that's uh, that's quite a lot. We will come back next week, and we will uh, take, we will get in the car, and we are going to start driving west along New England's haunted Route 44. Thank you so much for joining us this week, Tom. Oh, thank you. It was quite a pleasure. All right. Thanks for listening. Now, before we go. Today, I wanted to introduce you to a new show from our network, Evergreen Podcasts, called Countdown to Dallas, a podcast about the Kennedy assassination. On the 60th anniversary of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, former White House correspondent Paul Brandis takes an in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to that infamous afternoon in Dallas, Texas. He explores the troubled and broken life of Kennedy's killer, Lee Harvey Oswald, and challenges six decades worth of conspiracy theories, none of which have been proven. Learn more about Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Thanks again. Our guest here on Crime Capsule has been Tom D'Agostino, co-author along with Arlene Nicholson of New England's Haunted Route 44, published by the History Press. To order a copy of the book, visit your local independent bookstore or visit arcadiapublishing.com. Join us next week as we continue our conversation with Tom, and he takes us to some of the scariest spots along the scenic drive. Tune in to hear your host wimp right the heck out. See you then. Thanks as always to our producer, Bill Huffman, our production director, Bridget Coyne, audio engineer, Ian Douglas, and our executive producers, Michael DeLoya and Gerardo Orlando. I'm your host, Benjamin Morris. Crime Capsule is a production of Evergreen Podcasts and a signature title of the Killer Podcasts Network. You can find Crime Capsule wherever you listen to podcasts. Discover more great true crime and paranormal programming at KillerPodcasts.com.
One of Scotland's most notorious unsolved murders. To think that someone could turn a cheese wire into a garrote and take someone's life. The level of violence, the uncertainty and the randomness frightened people. She always thought the killer was going to come back after her. Society needs to find that killer. Who is the cheese wire killer? Listen to the full series now, wherever you get your podcasts.